It's good to kind of walk through Scripture uh, from start to finish, like a book of Romans, because it allows you and it actually forces you to wrestle with all of the texts that are in there, and even the really difficult ones. And today might be one of those texts that you just sort of kind of skip over and say, you know what, I'm just going to leave that one alone. We'll just go on to the other stuff. Um, But uh, that's one of the texts that we're looking at here today. And so I'd encourage you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 1. Last week, Pastor Harry introduced us to this series and looked at the first half of uh, this chapter. And today we're going to look at the the second half of of Romans chapter 1. Paul is saying in this text that he is really eager to preach the gospel to this church in Rome. He is uh, speaking here uh, and and he is proclaiming this gospel that is there for both Jew and Gentile. And we'll see that as we get further into the, of, of this letter to the Roman church. That he is, uh, this gospel, and part of this good news is that it is both for Jew and Gentile. And yet Paul is one who feels called to the Gentile people, and so he's proclaiming this truth and this gospel uh, to Gentile believers in Rome, and he wants to encourage them, and he also wants to be encouraged by them, as he says in verse 12. And so it's interesting that it's written to believers, and you have to kind of stop and think about that for a minute, and he's saying, I want to preach the gospel to you, and And so he's preaching not just for salvation, but he's preaching also for transformation. Because these are people who have likely, understandably, given their lives to Jesus, have have said, I want to follow Jesus and be a follower of Christ. So Paul is not just talking about conversion here, but he's talking about changed lives. He's saying, do you really understand the gospel? Do you really understand the truth of it? Do you understand how it needs to infuse every part of your life, every aspect of your being, all of your actions and how you live. And so he's preaching this gospel to them, and he's saying you need to not only know that this gospel that you are saved by faith, but that you are also saved for faith, to live a life of faith and to live out of that truth that you are called to. And in verse 5 from last week in the New Living Translation, it says it this way. He says, I want you to believe and obey to the glory of God. And so you might think of those words that, that some of you are familiar with and others of you think they're just long, weird words like justification and sanctification. And so Paul is saying through Romans, and we'll see that through here, that you are both justified, that you have been made right with God, declared holy, and you are made just before God, if you think of a courtroom scene, but also that you have been sanctified and are in the process of being sanctified, becoming more and more like Christ as you actually allow this gospel to infiltrate your life and change you and the Spirit of God to work within you. And so this is what Paul is excited to preach to them. You know, in the past number of years, we have done a series called The Gospel Story. We've actually done it twice in the last three years. I don't know if you noticed that. We actually didn't tell you that, I don't think. But, and we'll probably do it again uh, not so far down the road because it's a really good practice, I think, to kind of walk through all of Scripture. And that's what we've done in that series, uh, even though I think it had subtly different titles. But, but to walk through from Genesis to Revelation and actually teach an overview of Scripture so that we can understand all of the gospel story. Because it's all part of God's gospel story, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, the pinnacle of it and the centerpiece of it is definitely the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It all points to him. So that is the absolute pinnacle of that gospel story, but we need to understand it in the context of the whole. And so 
When we look at Romans chapter 1, we see in verse 16 and 17 that Harry focused on a fair bit last week as kind of the centerpiece of Romans that in many ways it sort of summarized, here's the implications of the gospel story, of this big story of God, this sweeping story of God. Here is the implications of that, that Paul says, I am so eager to preach this to you. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul is capturing the implications of this gospel story, especially the centrality of Jesus and what he has done. It has the power, it is the power of God to bring salvation, to forgive you of your sins. It is the righteousness of God that makes you right with God, and then we are called to live out of that. And you know, fundamental to our human condition is not so much that we have a horizontal problem in terms of our relationship with other people, even though we may have lots of challenges there as well too. There's brokenness there for us for sure. But, but our primary problem is actually a vertical challenge between our relationship between us and God. And so Paul is addressing this vertical challenge, and he says it has implications for how you live in the horizontal relationships as well. And we'll see that. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul is really talking about a solution and a problem, or a problem and a solution, even though ironically he starts actually with the solution, which is what Harry spoke about last week. Today we get to the problem part, because you see it's interesting, you can't really uh, look for a cure for something unless there's a diagnosis. What is it that's the problem? Before you're ready for a solution, I think oftentimes we, we want to identify and articulate what the problem is. Marketing is all about that. They're always pointing out our problems because then they say, well, now we have a solution for you. I don't know if you've seen the, the, the latest, uh, more recent ad for President's Choice Food. It's one that I actually think is brilliantly done. It's a really good uh, commercial in many ways. And the problem is, is that this woman is in the elevator and she's walking, I think, home from work and everybody is on their phones continuously. She's in the elevator and everybody's looking at their screens. Nobody's talking. She goes out and everybody she walks past is looking at their screens and nobody's talking. And she's like just walking around looking and everybody's looking at their phones and nobody's talking. She goes home. Her daughter is looking at her phone and her computer and not even saying hello. And so then the solution is she takes her table and she puts it out into the hallway and says, we're going to have a meal with everybody in the hallway in our apartment building. Anybody seen that commercial? Yeah. No. Okay. It's a good commercial. (laughs) And her daughter comes out and they invite everybody out and they're all sitting around the table. And the problem is, is that nobody is actually interacting with other people. Everybody's looking at their screens. So we're going to have a meal together and eat President's Choice food. That's the solution. Now, my cynical side says by the end of the meal, everybody's going to be on their phones texting and looking down anyways, but that's okay. So, but that's what we see here in Romans chapter 1, where Paul is looking at a problem, which is what we look at today, the second half, and in the first half, he's already given the solution. But the deal is, is that you actually can't and aren't ready to see the solution unless you understand this problem. Because you see, Paul, in many ways, he was accused of promoting sin, actually, in his gospel teaching, and we'll see that later on in Romans. He speaks about the freedom in Christ that we have and all of that, and people kind of said, well, what's this all about? Uh, You're talking too much about freedom. 
But if you read Romans chapter 1, you know that it's anything but that in terms of what he is preaching. Because he says this gospel is incredibly good news. But then he says, but here's the problem. This good news addresses. We serve a holy God that there is a wrath of God. And there's also the reality of our sin. And he points out these two very specific and distinct problems that have to be addressed and that the gospel does address the wrath of God and the reality of our sin. And without understanding these, the gospel, which means good news, actually isn't necessarily such good news. It's okay news. But if you don't understand the problem, you don't really receive it as good news in the way that Paul is proclaiming it with so much excitement. Because you see, it's really only once we understand our sin and the implications of a holy, almighty God that we see the hope and the promise and the joy of the gospel. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. So in Romans chapter 1, and we're looking at 18 to 32 uh, today in this last half, this is what Paul is addressing is the problem. And the main problem is that we don't often see the problem. And I think neither did they. And so he's pointing some things out for them. You know, as you look at this text, and some of you have talked to you already this morning, you know this, it's, it's probably got some of the biggest landmines that are found in the Christian faith. It talks about the wrath of God, talks about idolatry, talks about homosexual acts, it talks about a long list of sins, of other sins that are there. And so, but yet Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And when I was thinking about that phrase, I thought, you know, if there was ever a text where Christians might struggle with the gospel and even maybe be inclined to be ashamed of the gospel, this one might be on that list somewhere. And you go, I don't know what to do with this text. It's awkward. How do we think about this? How do we talk about this to other people? And we might even be, if we're really honest, be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel when we come to this. But I would say that if we are ashamed of that, then we really don't understand the problem of the wrath of God, the holiness of God, and the reality of our own sin. You know, we just sung that song in in Christ Alone, and in there it, it talks about how the wrath of God has been satisfied. And it is so true that that is the the truth and the essence of the gospel story. So let's read uh, Romans 1, verse 18 to 20 to start, and we'll walk through this text. Verse 18, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So it talks about God's wrath, the response of a holy God towards moral evil. It talks about the reality of this wrath and how Really, as we even read through Romans, we have to hold again in tension the wrath of God and the grace of God. That both of these are true. Both of these are part of this gospel story. How do we hold these two truths in in tension? And also the reality of our depravity and that we are made in the image of God. Again, Scripture teaches that both of these are true. Tim Keller says it this way in this quote that I've always liked. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. 
So that's the truth of the gospel. And I know that I don't win popularity contests to say, well, you know what, you need to know that you're rotten to the core. Um, maybe it's just my kids, but early on, they showed amazing capacity for rebellion. Was that just my kids? Um, you know, a lot of times you think, you wonder, what, what's the first word that comes out of a young baby's mouth and you hope that it's mommy or daddy or something like that? In our family, the primary word was no. No. How do you learn that word so early? Like right away, it's like the first word that comes out of their mouth. And it's like no. It's just like this defiance. Like really? Okay, that was just my kids, I guess. <laughs> and so we see that, that that is part of how we are wired. That's part of what is within us, that is part of this sinful nature that goes right back to Adam and Eve and to the Garden of Eden and to the fall. And yet, with that, we also have to hold in tension what the psalmist says in Psalm 8, verse 3, and following when he says this, When I consider your heavens, O Lord, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You read throughout scripture and you you see this truth of how we are created in the image of the living God, that we are a fingerprint, a unique fingerprint of God himself. And so you have this tension of this human sin condition and this depravity that we have, and yet we are made in the image of the living God. And this glory that is even there for those that God has created. And so both are true. Paul also points in this text to natural revelation, how God reveals himself through creation. We need special revelation of through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God in order to understand God for salvation. But but what he's saying here is he's saying that, that you can see the evidence of God everywhere. That the fingerprint of God is upon everything that you see that is created. It, it points to this reality that there is a creator, that there is a designer, there is somebody behind this. And that you can intuitively know that this is true, that there is evidence of God all around you. Psalm 19, for many people I know, a favorite uh, text, one of mine too. For the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hand, day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. The evidence of God is there in creation. The evidence of God is just all around us. We see the truth and the reality of God everywhere that we look if we pay attention. So Paul goes on in verse 21 to 23 to say that you are without excuse. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And Paul points to this truth that even though as people we see the evidence and the reality of God all around us, and even though if we're honest, and I've talked to so many people who have said this in different ways, that You know what? Even though I don't know God, there's something within me that feels like there's something missing. Because God has made us to be in relationship with him. So Paul is saying that even even despite that, that because of that, you are without excuse. And yet people didn't glorify or give thanks, is what he says. It says how God's wrath came upon those who suppressed the truth. 
Well, you can only suppress that which, what, that which you know. If you don't know something or understand it, you're not suppressing anything. You just don't know it. Paul is saying those who suppress the truth, they know this to be true. They know the evidence of God that is out there, and they suppress this, and they go in a different way. And so natural revelation of this revelation of God actually helps us to see him clearly and actually makes us guilty and in need of this good news of the gospel. But something happens, and we don't give thanks, and we don't acknowledge God, and Paul says the hearts are darkened, and even more it leads to wrong thinking and wrong actions. Scholars talk about this as the noetic effect of sin. Not only does it affect and, and the sin mess with our moral compass, it also affects our mind to the point that our default position is this hostility towards God. It's this default position that this, it kind of moves us down into a darkened place as we continue to walk this out. We have this tendency to put our little gods in place of the one big living God in different ways. Calvin says that the human heart is a factory of idols. We make idols continuously in ways that we don't even see or understand. The prophet Ezekiel says the human heart is wicked to the core. So Paul, he knows that the world has gone horribly wrong, that there's this intrusion of evil. And again, it goes back to Adam and Eve and to the fall. It goes right back to that, but it affects every generation that comes after that. And he's addressing this now in downtown Rome at that time in that place. And it affects us today in Saskatoon in 2017, just as much. We often have a tendency to take these things that are the gifts of God and we make them our focus. And oftentimes they're not overt things, they're not evil things, they're good things. They're they're gifts that God has given us and we, we turn them from good things to ultimate things. And things that we place our hope in, things that we make our identity around, things that suddenly define us and give us a way forward and and, and sort of are the foundation on which we live. And we typically don't do that consciously, but slowly and subconsciously these things start to happen. Whether it's our careers, our finances, our securities, our health, our our, uh, role as a husband, as a father, as a professional our identity in whatever way, whether it's a sexual identity or other identities, any of these things, we can, we can start to make the things that become the things that are our foundation, as Paul is pointing out. That's why John concludes his first letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, with this warning, with this very warning. In the ESV translation, he says it this way, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the New Living Translation, which tends to expand a bit more and, and flesh it out a little bit more, says it this way. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts, which is what idolatry is. Anything that takes God's place in your hearts and replaces him with something else that becomes a foundation, that becomes an ultimate thing. And so Paul is pointing to this truth. And then he's... It's kind of like he's saying, well, what happens when people embrace idolatry rather than glorifying God and giving him thanks? Life becomes the polar opposite of how God intended us to live. And in many ways, that's what he outlines now as he goes into these other texts that he starts to get specific with some things. You know, as I was thinking about this, um, these, these texts aren't safe places. I know that some universities now, they're promoting this idea of having safe places Right? Where nobody gets offended. 
And in all the politically correct world, you've got to make sure that nobody gets offended in these safe places, right? So they're sort of designated zones or something. Well, these texts are not safe places. They're texts where we see the offense of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and we struggle with them. Paul says in verse 24 all the way to the end, three times actually, three times, he says this phrase of of God gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their heart. Verse 26, God gave them over to the shameful lusts. Verse 28, he says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And there's this phrase, God gave them over. What does that mean? How does God give them over? It's how these people, they they took these steps in these different directions, and they they made these choices, and they they walked out these things. And, And then it's like God just allowed them to feel the consequences of their choices and their sin. One commentator, Douglas Moo, he, he gives this helpful image and he talks about, think of a small boat and a stream. And in this stream that has some current flowing past, there's a dock. And you're standing on this dock and maybe you're the one holding it or the boat is tied up. And, it, and the boat is sitting there and it's tied up in the dock and the, and the current on the stream is just kind of flowing past. Now think of just sort of untying the boat or if you're holding it, think of just sort of let go of the boat. It's like God gave them over, just sort of let it go. Or other commentators push it even further and say, God gave them a push. So not only let the boat go, but just sort of give it a push. Said, okay, if you want to go this direction, feel the full weight of the consequences of where this takes you. So either way, God is allowing them to feel the weight and the impact of sin. And so Paul is conveying here in this text different forms of sin and what that can look like as we exchange the truth of God for a lie. You have this downward spiral that progresses from disobedience to denial to idolatry to degrading passions to a depraved mind. In James chapter 1, James, the author, writes it this way. He says, when tempted, no one should say, well, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And he talks about this multi-step decision and choices and where it leads and so on. Which is what Paul is alluding to here as well. As it leads us to difficult places. And so as he starts with sexual sins, he says, you know what? This is not how God intended the gift of sex to be used. The gift that he, in fact, gave us. And this truth that before we commit sexual sins, we actually make sex our idol or else self-gratification, or our identity is found in sexuality instead of God. And so those difficult verses, as he says in verse 24 and following, it says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I want to say clearly that this today is not in any way what I would say is a full teaching on this area whatsoever. It it truly isn't. I mean, there's so much that we could talk to. The difference between homosexual orientation versus actions What does the Bible say in all this? How do we live in this way and respond? How do we address issues within our family and so on? And so I get this. 
It's a whole sermon unto itself. And that sermon I did preach about a year ago. And if you want to go into a fuller teaching on that specific topic and how we approach that and even some of our men and brethren position on this, I would encourage you to go back onto our website and, and it's on a sermon series called Gospel and Culture. And if you go on to November 1st, 2015, just over a year ago, it's a, a sermon called Human Sexuality and God's Design where I go into much greater detail into all of these things. But, but here it's interesting how God points out these sexual sins but then he doesn't stay there. And it's almost like God may have worried that while well, some would conclude, well, it's only about kind of the major sins, you know, such as those homosexual acts that he's talking about here. Well, no, he continues on because if you read verse 28 to 32, you see how he continues on. And he says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over, again that phrase, to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteousness decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Quite a list. It's interesting how Paul continues on and he goes on to these other lists because it's not just about sort of what we would sort of put out there as well, it's the big sins. He's saying, you know what? He gives a list that's so long that it would have hit home with every person reading the letter. At that time, and I think today as well too, he talks about being gossips about being boastful. It talks about people disobeying their parents. It doesn't leave a lot of room for us to move suddenly. And I think that's the point of his passion for the gospel. Because he says this gospel is great news for all you, you sinners, for all us sinners. We are all called to repent and come before the Father. We are all called to realize the need for this gospel. In fact, I think the peak and the pinnacle of this list is actually in, in verse 31. He says, you have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. You see, sin is when we replace God's designs and intentions and we put ourselves at the forefront. It's idolatry. But it's also the negation of humanity. It takes away from our, our ability to trust, to love, and to empathize with others. So it's like Paul is saying, you know, you want to know how bad it can get? Just look at all of the things that I'm listing here. And you're all guilty. We're all in need of this gospel. And so folks, you know, when we really start to understand the problem, and we see the wrath of God, of this holy God who is without sin. And we start to understand the reality of our own sin and the implications of our sin, of, of, how, of what that does in our vertical relationship with the living God, but then also how it affects those in the horizontal. It just causes us to respond in one way or another. And to embrace this gospel of truth, this gospel of salvation, this gospel of justification, that even though we are that, 
that we are declared holy and righteous before the living God because of what Jesus has done. It's this declaration and freedom that is given to each one who cries out to the living God. One commentator says, Christ saves us from the reality or from the penalty of sin, gradually from the power of sin, and one day from the very presence of sin. I'm going to read one last passage and invite the worship team up as I read this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. You know, this is the truth and the power of the gospel. I personally feel like the whole area of repentance and confession is one that is a spiritual discipline that is underutilized. That I think we need to recognize when we see the reality and the truth of this gospel. Because as Paul says in this text, we are hardwired to worship. We are hardwired to see and to know this living God. We see evidence of him everywhere. We feel the vacuum of his absence in our gut if we do not know him. And so as I was thinking about today, I thought, you know, there's so many different ways that we could respond and and I could try to manufacture a response. I don't have a response for you. I just ask that you would respond to this gospel. You know what God is stirring in your heart, what the Spirit of God is working within you. Maybe it's somebody who's never known this living God and it's a first time just giving uh, your life to Jesus and saying, I want to follow and know this living God. Maybe it's somebody that has been a part of the church all your life And you realize that, yeah, maybe I'm one of those who actually hasn't understood the implications of this gospel. And so as we continue on this morning, as you continue into this week, my question simply for you is, how will you respond? And would you respond to this grace of God and this hope of the gospel? Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the truth and the power and the reality of this gospel message. And Lord, I I pray that for each one of us, we would understand the holiness of who you are and what that means. And that we are to fear you, not not in a way that makes us feel really small and terrified, but in a way that just looks at you with awe and leads us to worship. And God, I pray that you would help us to see the reality of our sin and the need for a Savior. And God, that you would change us and make us whole. And that you would continue your transforming work within us. Spirit of God, would you prompt us in terms of how you would have us respond today and through this week? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.